150 years after slavery's end in the United States, seized by the story of the Amistad Rebellion, a major turning point in the story of America and human rights worldwide, a historian and filmmaker follows the spirits of the people who made it happen to Sierra Leone, West Africa, in search of the ghosts of Amistad. We wanted to find Lomboko, a slave trading factory where all the rebels were incarcerated before they were loaded onto slave ships. Other researchers had been looking for it for nearly half a century. We wanted to experience that place. Today on the Janice Adams Show, Ghosts of Amistad, a journey of discovery. First, the news. On this UN-declared International Day of Remembrance for Victims of the Transatlantic Slave Trade, we still ask, why, 150 years after slavery's end in the United States, do we feel the need to talk about slavery and the slave trade? West African scholar Dr. Arthur Abraham comments. This is one of the greatest events in human history. Its legacy and ramifications are with us and are going to be around for a very long time to come. Four years ago, seized by the story of the Amistad Rebellion of 1839, a major turning point in the story of America and human rights worldwide, historian, author, and filmmaker Dr. Marcus Redeker went in search of the stories of the people who changed the world. Now that story is told in his book, The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom, and the documentary film Ghosts of Amistad. Marcus, what is the story of the Amistad? The Amistad story, Janice, is that of uh, 53 Africans, 49 men and four children, three little girls and a little boy, who managed to do something that was so difficult to do. They managed to capture the slave ship on which they were being transported from Havana, Cuba, to a plantation region in Cuba. They captured the ship. Uh, they, they then managed to sail the ship 1,400 miles north to the uh, northern end of Long Island, New York. Uh, they were captured then by the American Navy, thrown in jail, and uh, charged with piracy and murder. As soon as local abolitionists heard about this uh, event, they flocked to the jails, and the Amistad Africans allied with these abolitionists and waged a 19-month battle in the court system for their freedom. No one expected them to win, but in the end they did win, and they were able to go home to Sierra Leone, where they all had come from, and this was a tremendous victory for the abolition movement. And of course, it's a fascinating story that even has now been captured in film, the film that Steven Spielberg did, Amistad. So what is the significance of it as we think about it today? I think the primary significance of the Amistad case was that it showed that you could fight back against slavery and win. Now, this, of course, had been done on a much grander scale by Toussaint Louverture and the enslaved people of uh, Saint-Domingue, which on independence became Haiti. Uh, this terrified slave owners everywhere. But in North America, there had been a series of uh, major revolts, but no one had ever been successful. The Amistad case, which basically uh, happened on the high seas but then played out in American courts uh, in Connecticut, this was as close as anyone got to a really powerful and successful insurrection. And because of its success, it had quite a galvanizing effect on a movement to end the slave system. The story as we tell the story of the Amistad, begins aboard this ship. But their journey does not begin there. And that, of, that is pivotal to the story, is it not? 
It certainly is. And, and I must say, this is one of the things that I was most eager to do in both writing the book, The Amistad Rebellion, and in making the film, Ghosts of Amistad, because I consider the African part of the story to be absolutely essential. Most people, including Steven Spielberg, had concentrated very heavily on the trial. And the trial is important, but you can't understand the rebellion simply through the trial. So we needed to go back to uh, southern Sierra Leone, where the Amistad Africans all came from. We needed to study their experience there in the 1830s. We needed to know that all of the men were trained warriors. There had been battles uh, in their native land over the slave trade, and so the fact that they were uh, so skilled at warfare turned out to be an extremely important part of their success. So, uh, in a way, what I've argued uh, is that uh, the, the African side of the story is, is really the most important thing, because without understanding that, you can't understand why they were able to capture the slave ship in the first place. And without their capture of the slave ship, John Quincy Adams has no one to defend before the Supreme Court. And we'll, we'll come back to that issue of the American courts, because there are some ironies there. As we tape this, we are going through some political issues here in the United States that actually are hearkening back to some of the issues raised by the Amistad and not the issue of enslavement or not enslavement, but the issue of what rights do human beings have no matter where they are. Absolutely. And of course, the abolition movement was one of the, uh, many people regard it as the world's first modern social movement. Uh, and it, it, its success, it took a long time because the slave system was a very powerful economic entity, but uh, that was a major victory for human rights. Uh, and I think uh, most everybody acknowledges that. But that battle is never over. And to give just one example, as I'm sure you know, Janice, uh, there has been a kind of resurgence of slavery around the world. There are probably more people enslaved today than there were at the peak of the Atlantic slave systems. Now, those people don't make up as, as great a percentage of the world's population, but it is definitely true that um, unfree labor has come back, uh, and there needs to be, there is actually a new anti-slavery movement to fight against it. How could that be? You know, with with these things, you say, well, literally, how could that be? Haven't we all, as a as a universe, been through enough? How could that be? Where is it happening most today? Well, it's happening in many different parts of the world. It's happening in, uh, uh, for example, in Brazil. There are agricultural laborers who are essentially enslaved. You'll find uh, child labor in India and Pakistan. You find excuse me, more or less enslaved sex workers in Eastern Europe coming to Europe and the United States. And, and I think uh, the reasons why it persists really have to do with uh, the fundamental fact that people make money through this enslavement and exploitation of other people. So in, in, when, when we look at the struggle against slavery, uh, exploitation itself was not abolished. It just changed forms. Mm -hmm. And in the American South, it changed from slavery to sharecropping. But that in itself was going to lead to longer-term problems of oppression. Sharecropping, Jim Crow segregation, the resurgence of Jim Crow, what um, is now called the new Jim Crow. Exactly. And so it, it doesn't go away. The deeper causes have not really been addressed. The deep, see, I believe, Janice, that uh, slavery and those slave ships are still very much with us in this sense. The, the aftermath or the afterlife of slavery has been to create uh, deep structural inequality, 
discrimination, premature death, uh, a whole host of things that can really be traced back uh, very straightforwardly to the existence of slavery. So we have really come, uh, we've certainly made progress in abolishing it. Uh, the civil rights era was another moment of progress, but many of the deep uh, causal factors remain. We have been broadcasting a Black History Month special. In the context of that, I read to the audience excerpts from Columbus's actual log book mm-hmm. and spoke about the role of the Catholic Church in literally destroying the world. The Pope who simply decides that he is going to stop European warlords or kings or chiefs or whatever you want to call them, it's the same thing, whatever title we give the power structure, stop them from warring amongst each other and decides to calm that down, he will take a map of the world and simply divide it up and he'll give each of them a part, which is what he does. And as confirmed by Columbus's logbook, Columbus is then assigned right and title to any place where he touches land as long as the taxes on that land go to the king and queen he serves, Queen Isabella, and the tithe of converting the, quote, souls to Catholicism, Christianity, goes to the Catholic Church. And in his first entry, he's landing. He says he has just landed. And he says that essentially they will make good servants. How he knows that the minute he lands is not quite certain, except that he's decided that and he has the weaponry to enforce it. And he says, and they will make good converts because they appear to have no religion. How he knows that doesn't make much sense either since he has just arrived and he has simply decided that and is about to enforce that. Some people will say, well, you know, it doesn't begin there. People have had slavery for a long time. But do we not have to take some responsibility for a church and a government that colludes to do that kind of thing? Would it make sense if a Native American chief took a map of the world and divided it up and said, I give the Cherokee this part of Europe and I give the Algonquin that part of Europe and in perpetuity they shall have title and rights? And of course, we'd say those people are crazy. But we, for some reason, we still haven't gotten it in our heads that there's something wrong with the idea that a pope did this, and Europe has followed it, and we're still stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Now, this is absolutely true, and uh, uh, so much of the current world order is a function of conquest and plunder. But conquest and plunder tends to legitimize itself over time. And there are a lot of ways that happens, and one way is by writing history that serves the interests of the powerful. The winners write history. I'm sure you've heard that many times. Uh, and, and so it is with uh, almost all of the history of American slavery. Uh, the, it is absolutely true that the states and major religions of the world were almost all of them complicit, not only complicit, deeply involved in creating these uh, slave systems that produced extraordinary wealth. They had very clear reasons for doing this. Uh, so, and we still live with all those consequences. History is written by the winners, but for some reason, you have decided to write a different history. You've decided to tell a different story. What attracted you to the story of the Amistad? Well, uh, Janice, I got involved in work as a historian coming out of the social movements of the 60s and 70s. And at that time, there were many demands being made for a new kind of history. Um, the civil rights and black power movements wanted a history that took issues of race and slavery seriously. The anti-war movement wanted a history that had uh, previous protests against war. So this new kind of um, demand 
for an alternative history moved me and lots of other people uh, to to study and to try to write that history, uh, a different history, a history that might be part of a longer-term uh, project of emancipation. Uh, with regard to the Amistad story, the reason why I started to work on that in particular uh, has to do with the book that I wrote just before that. I wrote a book called uh, The Slave Ship, A Human History. And this was a study of the British and American slave ships, uh, mostly of the 18th century, and the truly horrific things that happened on those vessels. Now, this was, frankly, a very tough book to write, because since I do what's called history from below, in other words, I always try to get at the experience of ordinary working people and understand how that made a difference. Since that's my approach, that meant, in writing about the slave ship, of trying to understand that set of horrors from the point of view of people literally down below on the lower deck of those vessels. Uh, so, so, so that book came out in 2007, and toward the end of it, after I had spent uh, a lot of time studying revolts on board slave ships and having seen almost all of them fail, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about the Amistad case, and I'm wondering to myself, how did they manage to succeed when so few others did? Uh, the number of successful slave revolts on, on ships was very, very small in number. And, and when they did tend to be successful, it was almost always when they were still close to the African coast and people would get in small boats and row ashore and escape that way. But this happened on the other side of the Atlantic. So that made me even more curious. We'll take a break and be back with our guest, Marcus Redeker. We're back with our guest, Marcus Redeker. He's the author of the book, The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom. And he is the co-maker, producer, writer of the film Ghosts of Amistad. Marcus, right before the break, you were telling us about your journey to Amistad, how you come to the story and its significance to you. Um, and you put it in the context of the modern scholarship, that whole drive for relevance and relationship to the larger history, not only its, its thrust, but its repercussions. Tell us more ab about what it meant for you to do this area of scholarship. Well, I was especially interested in the Amistad case because I felt that all of the histories that we had had previously, and including Steven Spielberg's film, looked at the story from above, meaning they made John Quincy Adams and the abolitionists and the judges the main actors of the story. Uh, and I thought that was wrong. I felt as though the, the, the real heroes of the Amistad story were the uh, Africans who made that successful revolt. So I then wanted to study the, the, the story from below. Now, a lot of very knowledgeable historians told me, well, that's fine, you can try, but you won't really find anything about these people's lives back in Africa. And uh, I'm sure their advice was well-meaning, but nothing could have been further from the truth because, in fact, there was a tremendous amount of evidence, uh, some of it in very uh, well-known sources, uh, about who they were, what kind of work they had done back in Sierra Leone, their families. Uh, there was a, just a great deal to, to, to be known about them. In fact, I would go so far as to say because the Amistad Africans were in New Haven jail for so many months and so many people came through and talked to them, we probably have a better archive about those enslaved people 
than any other group of rebels I have ever come across. So, in fact, it proved to be um, a very rich body of evidence that we could use to reconstruct their lives. And that, I think, as I said earlier, is really the key to understanding the rebellion, who they were in Africa, uh, how they thought about uh, their transit to the new world, how they made a collective decision to fight back. I was fortunate to be on the board of an organization called the Amistad America, which took on as its goal and ultimately achieved building a replica of the Amistad for the purpose of making it a teaching vessel to tell the story of what it meant to be enslaved, what the journey to slave from freedom to slavery was. But I found it interesting that even in all of my studies, my master's is actually considered the the nation's first graduate degree in black studies. And then I went on to do doctoral work in, in Massachusetts. And at no time did I hear anything or know anything about the Amistad. I came upon it doing a commentary about roots and I knew that Farmington, Connecticut was the crossroads of the Underground Railroad in Connecticut and so decided to do this there and found these still remaining, you know, actual sites from the, the Underground Railroad, but still didn't know anything about the Amistad until we decided to have a backdrop for the filming that we were doing of the Farmington River because of talking about escape and wade in the water, God's going to trouble the water and the significance of waters to escape. And behind me was a, a graveyard. And in it was a small weathered tombstone, really old, that had brand new fresh bunches, tiny bunches of flowers. And so I asked about it. Why would such an old weathered marker have like 20 tiny little new bunches of flowers? And they explained to me, well, look at the marker. And it said, Foon, Fonye, I think we would now say. And um, that Essentially, these every year in Farmington, Connecticut, children place flowers on the gravesite of Fanye because he rescued a child from drowning when he was living there. And then they said, and he was one of the Amistad captives. And that's how I come to the story in that very poignant way. And in visiting Farmington on a number of occasions, yes, I was able to explore the Underground Railroad. But what I also found was that the places where the Amistad captives actually lived still are there. I actually, it's in private hands now, but I actually spent time in what was Sangbei's room um, upstairs in a in a barn with his own private privy on the floor on the level below. So it becomes very real. It on one level it's a story. We see it in a film. On another level it becomes very real when you can see the bed is still there where he slept. It's in private hands. It's not a museum. The things that he touched are there. And the lives of the people that he touched and the lives of the people who were touched by his life on both sides of the Atlantic remained so. You had the privilege of meeting some of those people. Tell us about them. Well, I was going to say that uh, that's that's a very moving story about how you encountered the Amistad case through the gravestone of Fune. Um, he he was a, a, a very powerful swimmer, uh, and yet uh, he drowned in that river. 
And most people think, and I, I found some evidence to this effect, that it was actually a suicide, that he had despaired that the Amistad Africans would never be able to go home to Sierra Leone. And in a very real way, his death was a catalyst. Uh, as soon as this happened, it had a tremendous effect uh, among the other Amistad Africans, obviously because he was such a, an important and well-liked uh, member of the group, and it also had a big impact on uh, the abolitionists, who then sort of got in motion and finally raised the money. Uh, actually, I should say the Amistad Africans themselves raised the money so that they could go home to Sierra Leone. And when we went to Sierra Leone in May 2013, we we knew the villages that many of the Amistad Africans had come from. Uh, we visited about 10 villages, and one of them was uh, Fune's village. Uh, it was called uh, Bumbe, and we talked with local elders there. Uh, one of the first things they did was to interpret the meaning of his name, and basically what it meant was uh, a man of great strength, of, uh, that uh, if, if he were to hit you, it would, it would do you great harm. Uh, and I knew that from the from the documentary records that he was a physically very strong person. Uh, it turns out that in that particular village, they did not know a great deal uh, about him. Um, there wasn't uh, much surviving memory. Uh, and at one point, I asked the interpreter, I said, uh, should we tell the people in the village, what happened to Funai? And he said, no. He said, you must not tell them because if uh, if they found out that he committed suicide, they would be ashamed and they wouldn't really, they would, they would not want to talk about it. Um, so that, you know, this is one of those uh, stories that ends in tragedy. Uh, uh, Sinke or Singbe's story also has a tragic dimension in that when he returned to Sierra Leone, uh, he wanted immediately to find his wife and three children. And he made his way at great risk because uh, he could have very easily been recaptured by slavers and sold back into slavery again. He went back to his village only to discover that it had been completely destroyed in war. So uh, his so even though he was able to lead a revolt that had a huge impact on the struggle against slavery, the slave system was so big and so far beyond his control, he could not prevent it doing great damage to his family. So we continued uh, to go from village to village, and perhaps the most important uh, discovery was in a place called Falu. Uh, this was a village where two of the Amistad Africans had lived, a man named uh, Fabana and another named Grabo. Grabo was considered to be sort of second in command after Sengbe. And when we told the, we, we talked to the local villagers there and, and spoke to them about uh, this man, these two men, uh, and they seemed to know nothing about him, but then... Uh, Something I gave them additional information, and someone says, "Ah, it's Grandpa Johnny." In other words, when when Grabo <laughs> came back, he he changed his name, as is very common in Mende culture, because people will give someone a new name when they've had an important new experience. And having lived among English-speaking people, they gave him an English name and called him Johnny. And so uh, once we learned this, then we heard all kinds of stories about Johnny. Uh, so, and this was really quite a moving exper uh, experience because, um, as I'm sure you know, among Mende people, the spirits of ancestors are very important. Uh, ancestors are considered to be, uh, their spirits are alive and on the landscape, and here we were bringing back the story of an ancestor uh, in this village, and the people were just fascinating, uh, by, fascinated by this and, uh, and, and so hungry for information about him. Uh, so we, we, and, 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 and probably the, 
the, the single greatest moment was when uh, a, a, a female elder who was considered to be the the mother of the village, uh, she announced that she was his descendant, that uh, Johnny had been her oh I guess, great-great-grandfather. And so we had a, just an extraordinarily... Uh, uh, meaningful encounter about this history, and uh, it was one of the places where the, the the knowledge that had been passed down over many generations was finally able to connect to the documentary record that we had, uh, and that was very very gratifying. You know, I I'm just riveted when when you talk about it because you have been on that side of of the ocean as well as studying it from this side a question just procedurally for us to go through the story for people who may not have known about it before this conversation you left us before talking about the captives and what happened when they took control of that vessel to your knowledge what did they know about what they were coming to? What were their expectations of what was about to happen to them? You know, this is, this is very interesting, and, and I must say that part of my work on this particular question was assisted by a man named Sean Burkaw, who was the captain of the Amistad replica vessel for a number of years. And so I, uh, every uh, year or two, I give lectures at Mystic Seaport, and I met with oh. Sean. <laughs> I, I met with Sean. I mean, this is basically I, I was uh, in, in, engaging with people about what you helped to create with this extraordinary replica vessel. And so I started talking to, to Sean about how was it possible that people who really uh, didn't know much about seafaring could sail this vessel all the way up to the northern end of Long Island. And so we began to talk about that. Um, I told him that I had discovered that on this journey, they had anchored 30 times in different places in the Bahamas and South Carolina, different places, and gone ashore for food and water. And he said, wow, I had no idea. He said, that bespeaks a pretty high level of skill. If they could bring the ship to a, a, a stop, anchor, lower the boats, you know. And so, so we had this very interesting discussion about the skill that was required to operate the Amistad. And I have a, I, I can't prove it, but I have a hypothesis about how they were able to do that. As it happened, this I learned in writing the previous book about the history of the slave ship. On a great many transatlantic voyages of slave ships, the mostly European crew of those vessels would fall increasingly sick as the vessel progressed, partly because they had caught malaria in many cases on the west coast of Africa. In that situation, about halfway across the Atlantic, the captain had to train African men how to work on the ship. So a number of the uh, uh, African men, when they arrived in the New World, had acquired some of the skills of sailors. And I think this is exactly what happened among the Amistad Africans when they were on the Brazilian or Portuguese uh, slave ship, the Tesoura. And there was one man in particular who was singled out by his comrades as being especially knowledgeable. knowledgeable. That was a man named Sese, that he really knew how the ship worked. So it's fascinating that they did have some working knowledge of the ship by the time they uh, got to Havana, and that then probably saved their lives and allowed them to get all the way to New York, uh, where they would eventually gain their freedom. And then one more thing about this, Janice, which is so fascinating. The Amistad Africans did have the idea, they did understand that in this big Atlantic world, there were some places where they had slavery and some places where they didn't. And so when they came ashore on Long Island uh, at the end of August, 1839, they're hungry, they're thirsty. Uh, a group of people have come on the, uh, the longboat ashore. They saw a group of white hunters. They didn't ask for food. They didn't ask for water. 
But the one man who could speak a little bit of English came ashore and said, is this slavery country? And it turns out slavery had been abolished a few years earlier in New York. And that man said, no, no, this is a free country. And they started celebrating so wildly that they scared the white hunters who picked up their guns, and then they had to soothe them and say, no, no, we're not going to harm you. We're just so happy. Uh, well, this, so, so they had the political idea mm-hmm. that they needed to get to a place that was not slavery country. Doesn't that then also speak to some of our perceptions of these people versus who they really were? I'm listening to you, and and in my mind, I'm saying, wait a minute, 1839 is when this is happening. Well, on this continent alone, we know that the first documented boatload of Africans comes in 1619. So this is 220 years of this insanity. And clearly, in 220 years, information has gone back and forth. Just a quick detour. You said earlier about how we always tell the story, whether from top down, bottom up, but essentially from the white people in charge, we look at it that way, and then we tell the story based on what their point of view and their experience of it is. And even as a black person, obviously, that's the way I'm trained to look at it, too. I'm I'm living here in the United States. But it wasn't until those the Atlantic child murders, when in Atlanta, people were disappearing regularly, every on a regular basis. You recall that. And all of a sudden, it made me say, oh, my goodness, this is what it was like. What it was like. On the continent, every day you'd go to the store and the person would never come back. You know, so there has to be some kind of memory passed down and information passed down. And even though the rebellions may not have succeeded, we do know that other people were able to make it back home. However, they did make it back home, but they did. So that is part of the information resource that people therefore have. What is the most surprising thing that you learned in your trip, on, or I should say on both sides of the Atlantic? What's the most surprising thing that you learned in each place? Well, I'd say uh, the first one uh, I've already mentioned, uh, the most surprising thing was that there was this tremendous body of evidence about who the Amistad Africans were uh, themselves. It was possible to know them as individuals. Yes. It was possible to, like, for example, Grabeau, this man from Folu, had a great sense of humor. Uh, and you could see that in the documents. And so it was possible, I felt, to, in a way, bring these people to life. That was that was surprising. Um uh, the most extraordinary thing that happened on the trip to Sierra Leone was when we were engaged in a search for Lomboko, the slave trading factory where all of the Amistad Africans were held before they were loaded on the slave ship. And we found a very remote village uh, where local fishermen knew the location of Lomboko scholars and journalists and others had been looking for it for about 50 years, and nobody had been able to find it. When we come back, more on Marcus's search for the place where the people of the Amistad caught their last glimpse of their African homeland before being forced onto the slave ship that would bring them through the torturous Middle Passage to enslavement in the New World. It's really quite a story. We'll be back here on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, historian, author, and filmmaker, Marcus Redeker, after the break. We're back here on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, Marcus Redeker. We've been talking about his work retracing the story of the landmark 
Amistad Rebellion back to its roots in Sierra Leone. Here's Marcus in an excerpt from his film, Ghosts of Amistad. The British fortress on Bunce Island off Sierra Leone is one of many monumental slave-trading fortresses that dot the coast of West Africa. It is haunted by the spirits of thousands of people who, in utter terror, passed through. For almost all of them, this was the last place they would ever stand on African soil before they were loaded onto slave ships and carried to South Carolina, Cuba, or Brazil. The fortress on Bunce Island symbolizes the moment when the slave trade was a legal, lucrative business that actually drove the Atlantic economy for a couple of centuries, providing the bodies whose labors on New World plantations would create unimaginable wealth. The basis of the slave trade was violence and terror used to transport people across the Atlantic and literally to dehumanize them, to transform them into property as slaves. The violence in Africa, on the Middle Passage, and in the Americas killed millions. A moral reckoning with the slave trade requires us to think about the mass death that characterized this prolonged and horrific phase of world history. We wanted to find Lomboko, a slave trading factory where all the rebels were incarcerated before they were loaded onto slave ships. Other researchers had been looking for it for nearly half a century. We wanted to experience that place. We spent several days driving around in southern Sierra Leone, interviewing elders and asking people, among other things, whether they knew the location of this place called Lomboko, the, uh, the, the place where the Amistad Africans were held, a slave trading factory. We wanted to find its ruins, basically. And we were quite discouraged. Uh, we were actually leaving the area when Tazif Karoma, our interpreter and guide, uh, decided, asked uh, our driver to pull over, and he went into a little market village and literally went from stall to stall and said, have you ever heard of a place called Lomboko? Have your grandparents ever talked about such a place? And, and he, he met a man who said, uh, I don't know where it is, but I know who will know. And he said, there's a little fishing village seven miles down the coast, and I'm sure they know where Lomboko is. So he actually got in the car with us and took us to this place. We got there, and we met this man, Vandy Massacoy, and he said, sure, I know exactly where it is. And we said, will you take us there? And he said, of course. So off we went uh, down this bush path of about two miles and then reached uh, an area where uh, the canoes, the dugout canoes of the, the, the fishermen of this village were located. Um, we got into the canoes, and they paddled us through a mangrove swamp, uh, and eventually we found Lomboko. It took about an hour's canoe ride, but we found it, and when we got there, this man, Vandy Massacoy, from the, the, the local village, started talking about the things that he had learned about Pedro Blanco, who was the Cuban slave trader who owned Lomboko, uh, and King Shaka, who was the main African ally who provided a lot of the slaves. And what this man said was just absolutely stunning because he knew levels of detail that I had actually seen in the documents produced in America. Uh, he knew things that he could not have known any other way except by the very coherent passing down of stories over about six or seven generations. He knew facts that uh, uh, I could corroborate through the, the, uh, the documentary record. Uh, he proved to be just an astonishing source of information about Lomboko, about the local slave trade, about Pedro Blanco, about the Amistad Africans. And, and the most uh, extraordinary thing he said was that he had heard a story that right there on Lomboko, uh, 
Sengbe had organized a revolt. So, this, of course, this made a lot of sense because uh, there was also a revolt on the Tesora, on the first passage from Lomboko to Havana, and Singbe was involved in that. And then there was the Amistad, so he had made essentially three different revolts. And everything he said about the first revolt was completely consistent with the other two. So to find this level of detailed knowledge in the oral history tradition uh, on the coast of Sierra Leone was just extraordinary. This was uh, the single greatest victory of our trip, and of course this makes up a very big part of uh, Ghosts of Amistad. As we talk about slavery, I think for many people what is surprising to them is really the children. And among the Amistad captives were children, and two who I just have very vividly, I think, inside of me these days are Margru and Kali. Tell us about them. The children actually play a very important part in the Amistad story, uh, and, and, and in this, they are not unusual. By the time you get to the 19th century in the slave trade, so many of the uh, coastal villages in West and West Central Africa have been demographically exhausted, which means that the slave traders are forced to take more children and more people who have been brought from greater distances in the interior. By the time you get to the 19th century, many slave ships are half children. Now think about that. Try to imagine that uh, on these vessels of horror made up you know, of children, sometimes a majority of them children. This, this is really difficult to comprehend, but it's true. So on the Amistad, we had uh, only four children, uh, three little girls and a little boy. Uh, it turns out those three little girls played a, an exceptionally important role. One of the mysteries of the Amistad Rebellion was this question of how the men found the machetes that they used to gain their freedom. How did they find them? Well, I discovered the answer to that question in archives in uh, London, where um, a, a very interesting man who was quite involved with the Amistad case, uh, Richard Robert Madden, wrote that the little girls were not shackled or manacled like the men, and had the free range of the ship. And one of the things they did, they exercised their curiosity, and they went around the vessel and started opening boxes. And they found a bo this box of cane knives. Well, as it happens, the preferred weapon of the Mende warrior was the long knife, a cutlass actually very similar to a machete. So these little girls communicated to the men that there were these boxes, there was this box of weapons, which they as Mende warriors would be very skilled in using. So the, the little girls actually, because of their freedom of movement, played a critical role in um, making the rebellion possible. But to speak more specifically about uh, Margru and Kale, uh, Margru actually, as you know, uh, Janice, goes on to become a very important person. Uh, she becomes a missionary herself. She takes the name Sarah Kinson. Uh, she becomes the first uh, African-American graduate of Oberlin College. And, uh, and actually, there's quite a bit of documentation about her life. Uh, really a fascinating figure. Uh, a little boy named Kale, they were all probably around 9 or 10 years old, I should mention. Kale was in some ways the, the star student mm -hmm. of the Amistad in that he learned to read and write English very quickly. And when the time came, just before the uh, big hearing by the Supreme Court, the elders, Cinque Grabo and the rest, got with Kale and had him write a letter to John Quincy Adams telling the former president, now this is like a 10-year-old a writing to the former president, instructing him what he's supposed to say <laughs> in, this, you know, in this meeting with the great court. 
as Kale wrote it. So, uh, so he played a very important part. He did go home to Sierra Leone. Uh, he thrived, and actually a colleague of mine, uh, Conrad Tuxer, who is a professor of African history at uh, St. John's University in New York, found a photograph of Kale at around age 80. Wow. Yeah. It's just personally touching to me to think that Kali was still alive at the age of 80 and so in many ways lived to tell the tale. Yeah, this is a photograph from the early 20th century. So it's, uh, it's quite an extraordinary uh, visual document. Proof once again that what seems long ago may not really be so. Absolutely. Marcus, thank you for being our guest today on this show. It's my pleasure. And may I say, Janice, that uh, it means a lot to me to hear how much the Amistad story means to you. I can, in, in your questions, in your comments, I can hear uh, your passion for this story. Uh, and I do believe it is a story that uh, everyone in this country and, and around the world should know. Today on the Janice Adams Show, our guest has been historian Dr. Marcus Redeker, author of the book The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Freedom, writer and producer of the film Ghosts of Amistad. For more about today's show, links to Marcus Redeker's website, his film, historic portraits and profiles of each of the Amistad captives, and that amazing photo of little Kali in his 80th year, please visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, our thanks to our guest and to you for joining us today. I'm Janice Adams. Thank you.